How are we doing? You okay? I'm good. Yeah, are you? Really good, thank you. Good, good. Okay, so let's start off with you. As a child, did you do much sport? Uh, yeah, my whole life was revolved around sport. It would be a case of as soon as I came home from school, I was playing football, I did tennis, eventually I started doing athletics. And even when I didn't have my recreational activities in, I was out the front of my house kicking a football against the curb, hitting a tennis ball against the garage. Like everything I did, I just live and breathe sport. So yeah, it was a big part, I think, for me growing up, for sure. So you've always been that way inclined. What sort of made you have the interest in racing? Um, so like when I was growing up, my dad used to want to watch like F1 on the weekends. Um, and then sort of when I was old enough, I just enjoyed wanting to go go-karting, not for anything serious, but like Bucksmore Park was down the road from where I lived and every opportunity I got to go and just drive a cart just to kind of feel it, I kind of tried to make the most of. And then as I kind of got older, I started getting into just like watching F1 for my sakes rather than just because my dad had it on the yeah. TV. And then eventually that kind of filtered into, oh, okay, like F2, F3. Yeah. And I started branching, watching other little bits and kind of, to be honest, it wasn't probably until I was 18, I really would say, like I would say I was invested so like into motorsport heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of just from then on in now, like if there's a race weekend, I'm watching something. So yeah, it's kind of just been a, a continuous build up of just everything into one now where I'm kind of like, I'm watching everything I can. Yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? Because you almost start at the top with F1 and then you infiltrate your way down, whereas other sports you usually start watching the bottom and then build your way up. So, yeah, I think it's very different in that way. Um, So in terms of your career, was this a first choice that you wanted to do? Is it sort of something you thought performance coaching is definitely something I want to go down from the very start or did you have other options? I mean, I always knew I wanted to go into sport. Yeah. Um, and when I realised I wasn't good enough to be a professional athlete, then it was, okay, what sort of avenue do yeah. I take to still be within the industry, but not as an athlete? So I always knew I was going to go to uni and study sport. Um, and then I kind of went down the sports science route at uni. And I mean, like every first year sports science student, when you first start, everyone's like, right, I'm going to go and work in football. I'm going to be in the Premier League. I'm going to yeah. be a lead sports scientist at whatever club. And I kind of had that same mentality in because that in my head, that's what I knew. Yeah. And it wasn't until we kind of, you start talking with your lecturers and things at uni. And I realised that there was this thing, there was this role within motorsport as a performance coach. Now, bearing in mind, I was going to university and studying sports science. There is almost a naivety about me not realising that I could have done that when I kind of, when I liked motorsport in itself anyway. So, but when I found out that I could kind of go down that route and that was a possibility from what I was studying. I was like, okay, all attention now is going towards this. And then everything else is just a fallback. Like my, my target was I'm going to work in motorsport. I'm going to be a performance coach of drivers. And everything I did from there in was just targeted towards achieving that goal. Mm. And that kind of started with just reaching out and kind of just finding people looking what to do. I targeted my assignments towards everything motorsport related. Um, just because I needed, like, I knew it was going to be tough. So I just wanted to make sure I had everything in place to kind of hit that target yeah. to make make sure it happened, essentially. Yeah. I know I, so as I mentioned to you, I studied sports science at university as well. And I did one, um like, research paper on 
nutrition and exercise of an F1 driver. And I don't know about you, but I found it so hard to find papers that back things up. And there's just no research out there. So how did you sort of combat that and go make your way around that? Because obviously you just said that you tailored all of your papers and research around F1 as well, while racing. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, I mean, there's definitely limited stuff out there. It's it's hard because I think as a profession, especially within sports science, we're quite selfish in terms of loving what we have. Yeah. So we always feel like we don't want to share anything good we've got with other people because we don't want to steal, they, we don't want them to steal what we know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bad trait to have, but obviously then that comes with a lack of research in the industry. So a lot of what I did was trying to find, I suppose, loopholes mm-hmm. in terms of targeting something and making it F1 orientated. So, yeah. for example, one of my um, one of our assignments we had was a marginal gains assignment. And it was basically looking at how can we find the next marginal gain in sport and things like this. So realistically, marginal gains are prevalent in every sport. Yeah. So I just found one and went oh i'm gonna apply it to motorsport and then just kind of built it around that so although a lot of my assignments were about motorsport a lot of the the research was kind of taken from elsewhere to build around it and try and provide an argument from there which is difficult but then i suppose looking at what i do now that's kind of essentially my job so yeah being able to do it at university has kind of helped me out to then take this into my future career Definitely. So talking about your future career, have you had any moments in particular that stand out where you were like, I've made an actual difference in that driver's performance over this course of the weekend, where it was a definite moment of that work? It's it's hard to say over the course of a weekend because as performance coaches, 95% of our job is done away from a race weekend, I'd say. And when I've spoken to other coaches in paddocks and things like that, everyone says the same thing. A lot of what we do is in preparation for a race weekend so mm. almost it's almost seemed that if we have to do something on a race weekend we've actually done our jobs badly in the first place okay <laughs> just, just because oh, yeah. we should be putting the driver in place for that yeah. weekend to be perfect regardless so I suppose twisting the question around slightly yeah. I think looking at sort of Zanvor 2022 was probably one of them big ones when I was working with Marcus because as soon as we met in the February of that year and I said to him, okay, what's your targets for the year? It was like this, this, this. And we need to make sure I'm ready for Zambort. Throughout the whole year, everything we did was revolving around Zambort because it was one of the more physically demanding tracks. Right. No one, they hadn't raced there before. Well, they'd raced, some of them had raced there before, but in different categories. So we knew it was going to be a tough race. So I think coming into Zanvoort was such a big a big sort of looming weight on my back that I can't mess this up because this is this is one thing he said to me we need to smash and then to come into the weekend and you know not really know what's going to happen but then come away with a sprint race win and you know no physical issues as a coach I've kind of feel like for me that was like okay I yeah. had one one real task and I smashed it. So that that for me was a big one because, yeah, there was so much weight on that weekend and to come away with a win, that felt good. Yeah, massively rewarding, definitely. 100%. Yeah. What would you say are like the most common weaknesses for drivers? Is it usually like physical or is it more mental? <sighs> it's hard to say. With <laughs> There's so many there's so much variation between drivers. So um, 
if you look at like any other sports like football, rugby, whatever, if you're comparing two goalkeepers, two strikers, whatever, there's going to be some minor differences, but generally speaking, they're going to be physically yeah. fairly comparable. You take that into motorsport and that's when things get difficult because you've got some guys who are six foot tall. You've got some guys who are five foot four. Some are coming in at sort of 75 kg of kit. Some are coming in at 60 kg of kit. So you're naturally going to have these, it's, it's almost like normal distribution again of some guys are going to be in that sweet spot, if you want to call it that. But you have some guys that are super strong, some guys that are super weak. Some guys going to be a great aerobically. Some are going to struggle to do a couple of push laps in a row. So it's hard to make that justification. Mm. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like I think you, as a, as a racing driver, especially as you move up the ranks, strength is obviously a big one because especially in the F2 cars, uh, there's no power steering. The thing weighs a ton, massive 18 inch wheels now. So that just makes it even harder. Yeah. So you need to be like physically strong to deal with that sort of repetitive load over the course of up to an hour race. Um, obviously when there's less downforce on cars, when you're looking down more like F4 cars, that's less of an issue because the steering weight's just so yeah. much lighter. Um, but then obviously when you look at it, when you go into F1, you have the benefit of power steering. So the steering's yeah. lighter, but at the same time, you've got so much more downforce mm -hmm. that you've got G-forces going through neck. So then neck takes an absolute batter in. Yeah. And that's just one that you, I don't think we can comprehend as people who haven't driven single-seater cars at that level yeah. because it's just so excessive. The power under braking just throws your neck forward and things yeah. like this. So if you can't deal with that, you're a write-off after two laps so there's there's loads of little things like that into, and that's just strength and you can go into detail about all the other parts of sports science and things like that but I think yeah that's a big one um for sure and then when you look at it from a mental perspective as well you tend to see the perfectionists come out as you get to the higher level so you'll see some guys who and again this is speaking generically but you'll have guys who think they deserve to be top five every session regardless and they'll qualify P8 and it's the end of the world mm -hmm. and their head just goes and it's just being able to help them control that and realise actually, yeah, P8's not great but if we use F2 as an example, mm -hmm. alright, you're starting third for the sprint race, you can get some good hauler points there you've got a pit stop in the feature race, anything can happen, you can still move up the grid, it's just they're very good at focusing on the worst things yeah. rather than generalizing thinking okay what it's not great it's not what you want but it can still be something so there's there's a lot of challenges yeah. it's rationalizing those thoughts and putting it into perspective isn't it and yeah I know exactly what you mean have you found obviously you've got some knowledge on football and as you go through university they do focus on football and that side of things quite heavily do you find having that knowledge on other sports has helped you in motorsport yeah I would say so I mean I remember when I first started reaching out to coaches in the industry when I first started none of them went out and straight into motorsport. Yeah. Everyone came in from different angles. And I think having a broad understanding of a multi-sport is huge because the fit fitness within motorsport is kind of a, coll a collection of lots of different yeah. elements that you can take from other sports. So, for example, like I played football. I've done a bit of work in football, basketball, athletics. So I've been able to take sort of like the aerobic training from sort of 
team sports, mm-hmm. power training from athletics. Oh yeah. Um, I've done some work in like disability sport, which obviously then has create allows you to kind of improvise and adapt in situations which you massively need in sort mm-hmm. of the uh, fluctuating world of motorsport. So I think it really makes a difference to kind of come into it and just have this sort of massive blueprint of knowledge that you can just tap into every now and then when things are a bit awkward you're traveling a race weekend and the hotel gym's got nothing that you normally have and you kind of got to yeah work out how so you can fast. still keep it up <laughs> exactly so I think I think you need that element it's, it, you're never going to be able to just be like I'm only doing motorsport and then get a career in motorsport you need a bit of everything just to be able to because the role of performance coach is so holistic that mm. if you're so specialized you're not going to provide any worth to the driver so I think yeah for sure you need a bit of everything coming through yeah and then obviously within motorsport there's then the different levels so you've got the younger people coming through the ranks how do you adapt your training for those that are younger versus those are more experienced um there's there's obviously the obvious differences like you're not going to be like I've worked with um go-karters who are 14 and I'm not going to put 80 kg on a barbell and make them bench press because it's just yeah it's like there's yeah, the yeah. obvious things like that but at the same time you've got to understand that these drivers who are coming to you at the age of 14 15 for example their career yes it's probably flourishing they might be of very high quality in karting but realistically that's not the goal the goal is f1 mm-hmm. and that's regardless of anyone they might not make it there but you've yeah. got to nurture them as if that is the target so you need to look at these younger carters and coming through and think, okay, we want to make them physically dominant at the moment, but we've also got to think about the long game. They might not have hit growth spurt yet, so we need to mm-hmm. be considerate of that. But also there's just different demands of carting to single-seaters. Yeah. Um, the steering strength in carting is actually quite demanding, so you often see grip strength and massive one in carting. They don't wear seatbelts in carts, so unlike in single seaters where their drivers are strapped in they can't move their trunk there's a lot of sort of movement through the trunk when you're carting so being able to control core through those sort of movements not only just to keep you upright but to help you sort of while you're driving so between even just carting and single seaters so you could say you've got two 15 year olds one carts and one's in f4 there's going to be different considerations even just in that perspective um and then obviously as you move up and as they get older as the series just provide different challenges. So you kind of just tailor their training to meet those challenges. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to work with someone consistently all the way through, you can start drip feeding those things yeah. before they come through. So I always try if I can, if I've got a driver at one level, I want to make sure that they're physically ready for the level above. So it's not a shock when they jump in. Mm-hmm. So like this year, if I'm working with GB3 drivers, we want to get them in the physical shape of an F3 driver because yeah it's all well and good being ready for the car you're in but if you have to jump up one week for example and you're not ready it's not worth even training and I guess as well that'll improve their performance in the current car as well if they're ready for the next level above then they'll be even better for what they're in now yeah I mean it's it's one of those things you've got the minimum requirements you need but anything above you're just gonna have extra energy in reserve you're not gonna be wasting energy trying to prevent fatigue so it just means you're super on top of what's coming but also, if you do have a bad week in terms of fitness or preparation, you should, you're should you not going to be as much of a deficit as you would be if you was only at that level. Yeah. So talk me through a 
the week running up to a race, what sort of things are the drivers going through? How is their training session split and what does that sort of look like for them? Um, okay, so some weeks differ. Um, it all kind of depends on what's going through. We'll take a, I'll use an F2 as an example, just because it's probably a bit more relevant and a bit more closely aligned to a sort of mm-hmm. an F1 race weekend. So normally, uh, if we're talking Europe, we're heading out sort of on the Tuesday uh or even well, actually no to be fair probably more a wednesday so you'd normally try and get a couple of sessions in on the monday and tuesday um and those sessions would look fairly similar to the normal routine because you haven't got to worry too much about that point about fatiguing the driver because yeah. you're still sort of three days out from getting in the car so you're not going to try anything new you're not going to try and get them to move that's going to cause any soreness because that's just unnecessary stress yeah. coming into the race weekend so you're just going to, you're going to train as normal keep things going and then Wednesday will be a travel day um I'd love to say there's some consistency to the travel times but we've flown anywhere from 7 a.m to 7 p.m and yeah. landed similarly so Wednesdays are normally a write-off um but then Thursdays are quite a nice one depending on how far you've traveled um you might need to do a shakedown in the gym just to kind of wake the body up again uh, but obviously Thursdays is track day still because we're at the track doing track walks you've got media duties team meetings all this sort of stuff so I always used to say Thursdays were the most boring day in the world because you're at the track from 8am till probably 6 7pm mm-hmm. and besides the hour track walk my role is redundant right. I might every now and then just check my drivers drinking water they're fueled enough for the day but there's no physical demands for the day other than that track walk so it's, it's kind of a tough one if you do get quite a nice Thursday, we can sometimes do a bit of training, but the track walk tends to be a consistent sort of, right. that's your exercise. Um, and then we come into the race weekend. So then from there, everything starts getting a bit more serious, um, depending on scheduling, everything like that. But obviously it'd be wake up, good breakfast. Fridays, obviously FP and quali. Um, so yeah, you kind of just go with it really. It's one yeah. of those ones that you just keep <laughs> once you get to that point, there's not much else I can do yeah. apart from preps. Obviously we make sure we're warming up pre-session. Um just kind of hitting all the main things, get, making sure they're warm, getting heart rate up, activating any key muscles, um bit of reaction work. So looking at things like reaction lights and ball catching. Um and then yeah we kind of had that nice gap in the middle where if needs be we'll do some recovery techniques but normally FP you're looking at four to six push laps so it's not physically demanding for a driver yeah. um and then yeah straight into quality uh similar and then over the weekend it's just kind of managing that cycle um if driver needs recovery interventions might be some like some basic massage work either at the track or back at the hotel mm-hmm. um when we leave and from my perspective it's just kind of yeah monitoring everything that's going on from their from their loading in terms of physical mental just making sure they're as happy as they can be in every situation yeah. um because at the end of the day I, I feel like the job as a performance coach although it has that tendency of feeling like everything's just sports and physical realistically my role is just to make sure they're as stress-free about every situation yeah. as possible whether that's physical or mental yeah definitely and is that something you expected when you signed up for this job or were you fully thinking like this is going to be all just in the gym and having fun and or did you realize that there was that side of it where you were just making sure that they were okay as well I mean it's it's hard because again when you're at uni everything they tell you is football related whatever and 
all you kind of understand of a performance coach in motorsport is holding umbrellas, holding a water bottle, and then doing the ball catch exercise yeah. before they get in the car. And that's that's all everyone knows. Um, so me coming into it, I was kind of like, right, I know some vague bits from speaking to people before, but that's kind of what I was coming with. So I was kind of, I think initially I was quite naive to it all. I was very mm -hmm. reserved because uh, my first experience of any form of race support was Bahrain test and then Bahrain race. So it was quite a big one to come into yeah. because I was straight in at the deep end. I mean, an F1 paddock. I need to know all the rules. I'm not allowed to touch the car. That's a massive one. I got told straight away. All these little things. So you think, oh, yeah, job's great. You get to travel the world, all this, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there's so much that you don't yeah. realise kind of comes in. Like the world of motorsport's crazy and it's amazing. But at the same time, it can be really not scary, but just very intimidating. Yeah. And you do need to come at it with sort of a with open eyes and kind of go okay right I know I've got to do this but I need to be really aware of everything else going on around me yeah definitely I think it's one of those where you go in and it's just like you need to block out the excitement and everything and actually focus on what you're here to do oh, I remember when I was in Bahrain like I was walking in and I didn't actually have time to get excited about anything because I was <laughs> so scared about what was coming yeah and just not messing anything up and eventually I kind of it's really it's quite sad to say actually but coming as a fan who loves like F1 etc I never had that feeling of excitement yeah. throughout the whole until Abu Dhabi at the end because glitz and glamour season's over but throughout, yeah but throughout the whole season I had that initial peak where I should be excited I was so counter that with like anxiety and nerves yeah that it kind of just flatlined and then as this one came down and this one came back up they just kind of met in that middle yeah. so I never had that real excitement I think but yeah until Abu Dhabi at the end that's when I kind of was like actually yeah this is this has been crazy yeah. to kind of think I've just followed this as it goes around. Yeah. So you said earlier Zanvoort was like a, a peak moment for you. Would you say that that was sort of a pivotal point for you where you realised you were good at what you do and that, that gave you the confidence? Because a lot of people, they go into these things and a lot of people don't have the, the experience and they, they sort of just go into it and they're like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll see where this takes us. Yeah. Was that a moment for you where that happened? Um, or was it, it earlier? Been, yeah, it might have been a bit earlier. I mean, initially, I had massive imposter syndrome. Yeah, that's I, what I like, I'm, Yeah, I'm looking. I so I was looking down the paddock. You look in the pit lane, and I'm there. I was what 24, 25 years, twenty four years old when I first started, and I'm holding the umbrella over Marcus's car, and I look down at every single person is, without hoping to offend anyone, but at least ten years older than me. Right. And I'm like, I look so out of place right now. And it was one of those ones you could, I, I mean, they might not have been, but I could see people looking at me thinking, like, who's this guy? Yeah, He's yeah. new, he doesn't look old enough, whatever. And it wasn't until, I can't remember when it was exactly, actually, when I had it, but I was chatting with John Noonan, who is Fred Vesti's coach. Mm -hmm. And he'd known Marcus for a few years. And he came up to me and went, you've done a really good job with Marcus. Because, like, I mean, for context, and Marcus will... I mean, if he ever hears this, whatever, but like he he would admit himself physically he was not at his best when I met yeah. him. So to get him into the shape and to have people complimenting, that felt good. And then obviously that kind of then just snowballs when you get performances come with it. Yeah. Um and things like that. But yeah, I think I think there was I, I couldn't tell you specifically when it clicked, but there was times where just little things would chip away and eventually yeah. I kind of got to the end of the season. And I was like, Okay, I feel I feel part of this now. Yeah. Um 
And even to the extent that Marcus wanted to keep me on full time as he went into IndyCar, and I just said to him, I, I, "Thanks for offer, but I just I'm not in a position to at the moment." So the fact that he'd shown, yeah, his confidence in wanting to keep me in, even when he moved across the world, that felt good as well. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Marcus then. How does it make you feel seeing him being so successful in the IndyCar now? Oh, it's it's good. I mean, it makes me regret my decision not following it. Really? <laughs> well, to, to an extent, obviously, you always want to go where success is. It's just yeah, natural. Cool. You want to be around success. And obviously, Marcus had an unreal season. Bearing in mind, he missed loads of the races because he wasn't doing ovals. He had opportunities yeah. and got some bad luck. But to come away with a really good first season in IndyCar, I think was it was good for me to see because we kind of knew towards the end of like last year that he'd be making that sort of move. So again, linking back to what we were talking earlier was kind of and sort of yeah. anticipating it and preparing our training to help him towards that. So a lot of what we did towards the end was less about finishing F2, but kind of preparing for IndyCar. So whether he'd agree or not, I like yeah. to think I played a part in his preparation for IndyCar. Um, so to see him come out of the season and do really well is it's really nice to see. I mean, I saw him last week and he said he's been slacking off about me towards the end of the season so that made, that made me feel good as well that you know yeah. he's, still, he's still missing me even when he's had a successful year so um but no it was good to see him do well I think he had a bit of a torrid time in F2 when he came with such prospects from sort yeah. of F4 and F3 um I just don't think he ever just got that consistency and sort of those performances that he does have within him and I think the whole environment of America and IndyCar really does suit him. And I think he yeah. will sort of prosper in that environment. Yeah, it seems really relaxed over there and definitely not quite as intense and cutthroat as yeah. the Formula um, series. Do What do you think or what would you like to think that he has taken from your days together into IndyCar? <laughs> that, that, that bicep curls aren't the be or end of a racing driver. <laughs> I think we can tell he, that's like the majority of the population. Oh, yeah, he loved the bicep curl. <laughs> um, I think for him, it was just that knowledge of understanding of what what the training kind of entails for him, what he needed. So <clears throat> we, he kind of came to me with a mindset of, I need to feel a burn. And that kind of then came hand in hand with lots of high reps, low load. And we kind of said to him, it's like, we need to get you stronger. We need, just need to get the weight up as high as we can. Yeah. It might not feel like you're getting a pump, like you might not feel like your biceps are burning, your legs are burning, whatever, but this scientifically has been proven to show what will make you better. Yeah. And even at the start of the, like it took a month or two for him to get that buy-in with the process until he started seeing the results of what we were doing. So I'd like to think he's kind of taken that through with him now and knowing that, yeah, it's great that he can hold his plank for 40 minutes or whatever it is. Like, no no one really cares about that. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive, but come on, man. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to help you drive in. <laughs> exactly. And obviously, bicep curls and that. So I think that more practical element of what he needs for his car, I think he's got, I think from that time with me, he's kind of got that better understanding of what yeah. he should be doing and how it will affect him. Yeah. Do you ever struggle with, like you say, getting that buy-in from drivers? Because I think a lot of people think if they go to the gym, they know what they're doing. Do you struggle with people thinking that they just know what they're doing? I think it comes with previous experiences. Mm -hmm. um, Marcus had obviously been racing for years and he had been at a level where he had had performance coaches before me. Yeah. So from his perspective, I think he was in the mindset of what he'd been told before was right. 
Right. I'm not saying it was wrong, mm. but obviously I'd come in with a different mindset. So to him, that was that was wrong. Yeah. Um. So I think it's kind of from that perspective in a gym environment, experience is kind of key from there. Whereas if you get someone like my driver I've been working with this year, had never been in the gym before. Right. Or if he had, it wasn't from a professional capacity. So me coming in as the professional and telling him this is what he needs to do, instantly was like, great, let's do it. Right. And that was quite nice because I didn't have those first few months battling with him to kind of work out what we could agree on almost. Yeah. Um, so I think it's definitely independent of which drivers you're working with and mm -hmm. what they've experienced beforehand. But I think if you can pick off some low-hanging fruit in terms of their performance early on, it's just an easy way of breaking down that barrier and they can kind of just, they can see then that you do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And you're not just some random they've been put with. Yeah, yeah. Who just kind of goes from there. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your time away from the track. Do you have any spare time? If you do, what do you like to do in your spare time? Oh, I think I do. No, you do get some spare time. Obviously, the race weekends are chaotic. That's yeah. well documented. And then in and amongst that, it is just fitting in training with drivers. Um, so, obviously, I try and see my drivers as much as I can without being detrimental to their performance. And mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that's kind of revolving around we're in the gym, we'll be doing cardio based activities. So um, we've recently started playing paddle, which is everybody's playing paddle. Everyone's playing paddle. I, I need I to mean, try it. It's, it's, it's so fun. I love How it. How is it different to like tennis or badminton? I don't understand it. The best way I can describe it to people is it's a hybrid of tennis and squash. Oh God. Okay. yeah it's there's a lot of rules and it's just a bit it's but it's just so good and okay. it's so, and for what it's really handy for me because my driver loves playing paddle and traditionally it's a 2v2 game but we play it one-on-one -on -one just so we run more mm -hmm. so we can use it as perfect training to hit like sort of cardio right. training so that's kind of our new hobby that we're taking into this winter which is quite fun okay um but in and around it really it's kind of just making sure i do enjoy some downtime yeah. Um, it can get pretty full on. There's been a lot of testing this year, which has taken it out of me, but just little things, just like every now and then I'll just like have a day. I'll just go out for a walk with a dog um, and just kind of relax. I'm a sucker every now and then for playing on the PlayStation, but to be fair, I'm barely on my phone and screen time anyway. So like every now and then I'll just sit down, I'll play with my mates just for a bit, just to have sort of yeah. just like that. It's almost, it sounds really bad because it's not a normal life, but because I'm not saying I've got this extravagant life. I've got a very normal life. But yeah, just having yeah. that, just going back to that classic, just like... I know what you mean. Reset of kind of like, all right, grounded, here's yeah. my mates, let's just chat and have a laugh sort of thing. So I don't really do anything exciting, actually, which is quite tragic. You have an exciting job. It is exciting. Say, yeah, that's, that's the most exciting part of my life is is my job, I'd say. So It's not and a bad people, thing. I, no, and most people, to be fair, do know me as the motorsport person, so... That's I'll take it. Not a bad it's, label it's a to good have. thing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, for anybody wanting to get into your position where you are now, what is the biggest piece of advice that you give them? Definitely networking. I've said it to so many people. I feel like actually I feel bored of myself and constantly <laughs> saying to people networking, but it is it's it's so true. And when people say it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, it is. It's very true. Obviously, it helps to know what you are doing. Mm -hmm. because you won't get very far even if you just talk to people but I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now if I didn't go out and reach out to x amount of other coaches finding out how they got into there asking for any little opportunities you'll get rejected 80% mm -hmm. of the time and it's 
horrible, but those who do get back to you and offer you some sort of support and advice can be really useful. And for me, that was Tom Clark, who's Esteban Ocon's coach. So that kind of that one person kind of gave me an outlet and now people are coming out to me and asking me for advice. So yeah. I feel like it's in my interest to reciprocate because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be here without it. But yeah, it's it's such an important thing getting to know people getting your name out there because it can be something as simple as you might speak to someone they can't like they, they might be able to give you some advice but no opportunities yeah but if you can prove your worth to them in just small conversation and something comes up they'll think back to you and it's just yeah. little things like that I think are really important especially in sport where it's so cutthroat and word of mouth you just need to be friendly with everyone yeah and that just comes with talking yeah, it's so closed door, isn't it? Like like I said at the start with the research and stuff, there's just nothing out there. And yeah, like you say, it's about who you know and what, not what you know. That's how I got you on because I was speaking to well, James. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad James reached out for me. He, he, he knows he knows how much I love talking as well. So he's probably, that's probably why oh, he put me forward. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and finally, I have one last question that I asked to all of my guests, although I've forgotten for the last like three episodes. But um. <laughs> If you were to jump in the car right now and put on a song, what would it be? What is your song of the week? Oh, that's I need, a... add, I need to add context to this. So I have a Spotify playlist called The Garage Radio. Okay. I put in everybody's songs in there. So that's just makes it a bit more of a sense. It's really bad as I've listened to literally no music for the past sort of <laughs> couple of weeks. The one song that kind of came to my head initially, it's, it's, it's a bit older, but it's one song that every time I play it, I just love listening to it. And it's Voodoo by Gordon, Gorgon City. Okay. It's a like it's just that. one of the it's just one of those songs that whenever it comes on, it improves my mood. Okay. And it's I mean it's probably very marmite, but for me it's just I love it. Are you very much a music driven person? Yeah, a lot of what I do would revolve around the music I'm listening to. Yeah. And I think I struggle to function through mundane tasks without music. Same. Cleaning, I'm, working I'm, out. I'm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah literally that's how I get through anything like any boring task I've got at work and I'm like I need my headphones in yeah it sounds bad now though because I said I haven't listened to music for ages <laughs> which means I probably haven't cleaned enough recently Done anything. So. Yeah. <laughs> no perfect right well thank you so much for joining me it's been no, thank you for having me. and it's been a great insight um and I'm sure everybody will be finding that very interesting Ooh.